don't worry. At the beginning, at the front of the Bible, there is what's called a contents page. And there is no shame in every now and again looking at that to try and get your bearings. Uh, but it's in the Old Testament. And uh, we've been spending a few weeks, a few months looking um, at the, 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 the book of Nehemiah, the story of what God was doing at that time in Israel's history. We've seen before now that they were a people who'd been for over 100 years, they'd been in exile, they'd been captive, they'd been um, defeated by another nation and taken away from their promised land and a captive people. But now uh, God's hand of favor is, is on Nehemiah to, to go back to Jerusalem and to continue the, uh, the process really under God's guidance, under God's power, under God's favor of coming to restore the city of Jerusalem. It's been uh, a heap of rubble for generations, but God is on the move, and so the people have been rebuilding the city, and we've seen how that's been taking place. Whenever God does something new, there is a reaction. There are, there's a kingdom of, of light, God's kingdom. There's a kingdom of darkness, and we've been seeing in chapter 6 the opposition that has come to what God has been doing. And actually, we've, we've kind of slowed down through this chapter to look at things a bit more closely. And that's what we're going to do uh, now, kind of completing chapter 6. So we're going to be looking at verse uh, 15 and into the first few verses of chapter 7. So we'll, we'll read that, and uh, then we'll get into it together. So it says this, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul. In 52 days, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Arah, and his son, Jehohanan, had married the daughter of Meshullam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Okay, so again, we've seen how uh, Nehemiah, uh, with God's help, has gone to Jerusalem with plans to restore it. And now the building work is complete. The wall that had just lain in rubble was being reconstructed. And, and really, I guess from our perspective, looking back, there's an air of inevitability about that. We, we know that was going to happen. Um, uh, Nehemiah seemed to know it himself even. So when he was speaking earlier in chapter 2 and verse 20, he answers some of the opposition then by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding it. So they, they start. Nehemiah's got a sense of, I just know God's with us in this. And so lo and behold, 
despite all the opposition that has come, the wall has been fully rebuilt. You might remember in an earlier chapter, if you've been here with us, um, they kind of built it to halfway. And, uh, you know, a certain wave of opposition came then. People who are not best pleased with what God was doing. And, uh, and now, with God's help, the wall has been completely uh, completed. And so all the surrounding nations who have been threatening them, ridiculing them, accusing them, trying one way or another to discourage them, now actually they are the ones who are discouraged. They are the ones who are afraid. And they've lost their self-confidence. They realize this work has been done with the help of God. And so their, their schemes have failed. We've seen in particular um, men called Sambalat and Tobiah. Um, they've had very, very different ideas, very different plans for Jerusalem. And it's actually their plans that have been thwarted. They wanted to keep the city a pile of rubble, to keep God's people uh, discouraged and oppressed so that they would be able to hold sway over perhaps a larger territory. But uh, despite their plans and their schemes, uh, God's plans have succeeded. Um, However, as we've seen before, we see again today, that God's enemies don't necessarily always acknowledge defeat. They're not honorable in defeat. They don't realize they've backed the wrong horse. They come to their senses. They repent of all the opposition they've brought. And they, they turn to God and, and, and seek forgiveness. And they come to Nehemiah and say, actually, we realize we've been totally misguided. And we've been opposing what God's been doing when we've been speaking against you. Will you, will you forgive us? Maybe in some way we'll be able to play a more constructive part in what God is doing. No, actually, these guys just stay true to their colors so far. And so we've got time to look at another of their schemes, another of their tactics to try and undermine what God uh, is doing. That's just one more thing that we'll, we'll look at today. And it reflects really what ultimate, ultimately God's enemies are like. Not so much people in flesh and blood, but spiritual powers, uh, Satan and his demons. The Bible makes no apology for the existence of um, nothing near God in power and uh, and honor and prestige, but always seeking to uh, undermine what God is doing. They are defeated foes, but they don't acknowledge defeats. They have a variety of schemes. Satan has a variety of schemes that he tries to to use to distract God's people from what God wants to build. And again, so we've been looking at a whole number of those. The one we're going to look at today uh, that comes to us in this passage here is manipulation. These schemes get increasingly subtle, increasingly intense, however. And even though the walls are rebuilt, even though... And of God has given them success, even though these enemies are now themselves afraid and they've lost their self-confidence, they're still determined to attempt to, to tarnish what God is doing. So that's what we see here in manipulation, um, which is an interesting word. It's speaking of control. There are a whole number of, 
of phrases perhaps in the English language that are kind of getting at what manipulation is, what it means to be manipulated. We might speak of or recognize that uh, someone being in another person's pocket, or they're just in that person's pocket. Someone else is pulling the strings. So it might look like uh, she is leading or he's leading, but kind of behind the scenes, there's someone, almost like a puppeteer, just pulling the strings. And so that's kind of controlling the movement. So it's, it's subtle, it's out of sight, um, but pulling the strings, there's some manipulation happening. Or, oh, that person is, is wrapped around his little finger. Or just completely under the thumb. Uh, phrases that are kind of just getting at this thing of, of being influenced or controlled by someone. Or somebody being in that position, being influenced or completely controlled to another person's advantage. That's what's going on with this tactic called uh, manipulation. It's something that all of us learn, to one degree or another, from quite an early age. Uh, it's entirely appropriate um, for, children, for, for babies to cry. Babies cry because that's their only means of communication. If something's not going right, if nappy needs to be changed, if hungry, if uncomfortable, um, if I don't recognize the person who's holding me, there's a default position is baby cries. And we kind of understand, you're just a baby, that's okay. We need to nurture, we need to, we need to love, we need to kind of bring security. As baby gets a little bit older into, uh, into child and into toddler, as we made that transition, we realized that there are certain noises that I can make that will get a certain response. And so if I want the uh, responsible adult to respond in a certain way, I know I can make a lot of noise. And uh, I developed this into something of an art form. And so as a seven-year-old, I was still using it to, to quite good effect, uh, or attempting to, actually, uh, more to the point. And so I developed kind of um, the, the, uh, the scream and pause tantrum. And this worked particularly when, uh, when my mum my was a, a bit further away and I needed her to come to me and come to me quickly and suddenly do something for me. And so it went something like this. Ah, mum! Is she coming yet? Ah, mum! And I just listen and pause. Now she's still not coming. Um, a, a means of trying to to control her, a means of trying to get my own way. She needs to come to me. She needs to come and sort out probably the mess that I've just made or the thing that's just got wrong. And, um, and, and the telltale sign is the pause. This isn't a real traumatic experience because I'm pausing to listen. Is she coming yet? Whether, and then I know I need to kind of go back. Uh, sorry, I'm speaking in the present tense. I don't now do this. Just to make this clear, do I? No, I'm sure I don't. <laughs> but like I say, we, we all learn from an, uh, from an early age. We're, we're kind of perhaps wired in that way by our, our sinful nature to try and get our own way. And if we don't get our own way, uh, we can learn to make a lot of noise about it. Obviously, sometimes children can be on the receiving end of it. And that can be different. They, they learn about manipulation because that, that's kind of what's coming to them from the adult, and I was reading uh, recently in um, a book by Dave Devonish called Demolishing Strongholds, a conversation that he and his wife were having with uh, a mature uh, woman, a mature believer, 
And actually, God was beginning to do a new thing uh, in, in that particular time. And she was just saying and kind of confessing, this is strange because God's clearly doing something. God's clearly doing something that's good uh, when we're meeting together. Yeah, it's kind of strange things are happening, but I can see God's in it. But actually, it prompts in me an angry response. And uh, they spoke about that for some time. And, um, and they kind of identified this is to do with control. This is to do with some kind of spirit or attitude of control or manipulation. You're, you're wanting to be in control. Maybe that's because what, that's what you've experienced yourself. And she kind of, yeah, she could see that. Um, they prayed with her and she was released. She was set free. Um, and so that anger went. But oh, it just had intriguing effects. Uh, she, uh, the story goes on, describes how she went, then went shopping. And she then, uh, she, she was looking for some clothes to buy. She picked something off the rail. And uh, she looked at it, she liked it, but immediately she had the thought of, um, no. And she realized, uh, she felt the need to kind of put it back. She said, actually, no, I like that. I'm going to buy it. And what she realized had happened is that she would just think, no, my mum wouldn't like that. No, my, my, that's not what my mum would like. That's not what my mum would wear. So I need to put it back. This is a woman who had teenage children herself. I think she could make some judgment about what was kind of appropriate, if you like. She was, but because of the style, she could just hear someone else's opinion in her mind, even as a grown and mature woman of God. And she realized, actually, no, this is what I've been set free from. I can, I can buy this. And, uh, and not kind of like fear the control that maybe um, uh, my, my, my par- one of my parents had over me in my formative Years. It was almost just this knee-jerk, reflex reaction, but now she was aware of it, and now she was going to uh, move on from it. It's that kind of thing of just young people or adults making a lot of noise when we don't get our own way. Oh, don't say that. Oh, you can't do that. She won't like it. He won't like it. You can't, can't say that. Not around here. He'll explode. They can get kind of extreme reactions that kind of are just looking to, to bring control, bring uh, manipulation. That's what Sambalat and Tobiah have been like in Nehemiah's day. They have been making a lot of noise in protest, in opposition to what God is doing. We've seen how Nehemiah's resisted it before now, uh, and we're looking at it again today. But it's also, uh, it's not always extreme. It's not always loud and noisy. Sometimes it's very subtle. That's what's going on here towards the end of chapter 6. We've got this guy, Tobiah. I think he's a charming man. I think that uh, he was coming alongside the, the nobles of Judah, people living in Jerusalem, people who are part of uh, God's people and <clears throat> perhaps offering to help, appearing interested, but all the time uh, building up a, a kind of sense of obligation. The, the nobles are under oath to him. Increasingly, they are perhaps therefore saying what Tobiah would say representing his views, doing what Tobiah um, would do. So this guy, Tobiah, he doesn't have to be in Jerusalem for his presence to be felt. He's been gaining influence. How's he been doing that? I think the, the commentators look at that, look at being under oath to him, and they think that hints at uh, business deals, striking, striking a deal, shaking hands, being now obligated, linked, yoked with this guy in some kind of business arrangement that meant actually now their, their loyalties were divided. They were 
partly loyal to Nehemiah, but increasingly loyal to Tobiah. Because, well, we're, we, we do business with him. We, we can't now kind of uh, stand separate from him. And so they're just, uh, before Nehemiah and others, representing Tobiah's views. Well, that, I don't think Tobiah would like that. I, I'm not quite sure. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about doing it differently? And then uh, maybe Nehemiah is sharing his heart uh, to, to the people of God. But they'll go and report that back to Tobiah, maybe twisting the words a little bit. And uh, maybe Tobiah's just then dropping in a few things here and there. I'm just not, I'm not quite sure now Nehemiah knows what he's up to. Uh, he's, he's, he's done okay, but I think there's different plans. I, th- I think really you need to be looking in a different direction. Maybe under the guise of friendship, in the kind of guise of concern, just looking to undermine Nehemiah and looking to undermine what God is doing through these business deals, like I say, but also it seemed to be uh, through through marriage. Uh, so Tobiah, not a part of this community, but kind of marrying into it, looking for ways in which he can exploit those kind of uh, connections. Sometimes family can be a domain in which control uh, is kind of fostered or exercised, like I've already uh, Mentioned sometimes it's a case of, of men not leaving mum and dad. Not really leaving. Maybe leaving home, but almost like primary loyalty, even though now married, is still to, uh, is still to parents. And so new decisions are getting made in, in marriage, but they're being made really to please mum and dad. Not being made to please God in the context of this, um, this marriage. Still this, this kind of unhelpful influence um, that can be kind of wielded in that way perhaps not even knowingly but it's it's kind of that that's going on uh Tobias also using cri- kind of private correspondence he's writing letters to the nobles of judah they're speaking to nehemiah they're sharing with Tobiah what nehemiah has been saying and to and uh nehemiah himself has been getting letters this is not happening obviously it's not happening in the streets Tobiah's not necessarily there, he's not raising his voice, but he's just able to bring, or trying to bring, this control, this manipulation, trying to kind of affect or set the agenda to, again, distract God's people, demoralize and discourage Nehemiah from what God has called him to do. It's crafty, it's shrewd, it's not obvious, and it's designed to intimidate. Nehemiah sees that clearly. He says, Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. That's what the enemy is trying to do all the way through this chapter, is bring intimidation, bring fear. So that, you know, just looking at the situation in a different way. If you're familiar um, with Lord of the Rings, uh, you might know the character Wormtongue. And Wormtongue is a manipulative, crafty, so-and-so. And we, we kind of, if, if you read the story, if you know the story, he, he kind of manages to kind of slither his way into a position of influence. Not the leader, but kind of advisor to the king, uh, whose name I might forget or mispronounce, so I won't mention it. He's just the king, um, unless anyone can shout it out. Theoden. Okay. Okay, so he's the king, he's in charge, but Wormtongue has come in. What a what a great name to describe what he's like. He's just whispering in the ear of the king. Um, and if you've seen the film, because that's how I'm more familiar with it, but I have read the books, I promise. Um, 
you see this king and he's just confined to his chair. And it looks like he's got the, the weight of the world on his shoulders, just kind of hunched over. Wendy mentioned that word, oppression. Here's a guy who's just oppressed. He's passive. He's weak. He's the authority figure, but in a sense you wouldn't know it. And he's, he's fearful. He's become intimidated. And so there are these kind of these mighty men in his ranks, but nothing can kind of really flourish. Leadership can't grow because that guy has just been, he's just had a blanket of ugh, placed on him, all just by crafty words, all by whispering, all fostering fear, trying to bring that, um, bring that about. It's almost as if you know, we can look at the same situation but through a completely different lens or the wrong way around. So if you get a pair of binoculars, uh, you can see something, it brings something closer, it makes something larger, um, makes it clear. If you turn binoculars the other way around, it actually something which was once clear has shrunk and it looks way, way, way distant. And it's almost like that's what Tobiah is trying to do for Nehemiah. Nehemiah has been looking through the lens of the, the, the God of heaven is going to give us success. God's hand of grace and favor is on us. He will enable us to rebuild this wall. What Tobiah wants to do is to get him to turn the binoculars the other way around. Maybe he's going to be looking at the same situation. Maybe he's going to be looking at God, but God's, oh, God is small and God is distant. And maybe now I'm looking at something else. I'm looking at the enemy. I'm looking at the problems. Um, and I'm looking, and that's kind of magnified in front of me. Perspect- seeing the same thing, but perspective changing and a great deal of oppression coming. Uh, so that's what the enemy's trying to achieve. That's the, that's the scheme. That's the, the subtle but crafty tactic that the enemy is trying to to use and that's what he wants to do for us too ephesians chapter 6 reminds us that yeah our flesh is not against uh, flesh and blood but against principalities and powers of rulers of this dark world they they have fiery darts satan would seek to outwit us we're told in 2 corinthians 2 seek to outwit us by his schemes little devices what he wants to do is, is bring disunity. What he wants to bring is, is, is kind of try and put a wedge in between people. So now, actually, Nehemiah, he doesn't really know who's with him. He doesn't know who he can trust. If he opens his mouth, is he about to get misquoted? Is he about to get misunderstood? Is he being treated with suspicion? People who are all part of the community, all part, uh, in a sense, of what God is doing. But the enemy comes and he just wants to bring that uncertainty, that disunity, that lack of trust, that kind of isolation, just oppression and fear and intimidation. We're really going for what God's got. Oh, no, we've just got to dial back because we'll, we, you know, we've got to be aware of how we might upset this. And, you know, and the enemy gets in one way or another. Well, or, or does he? Does he get in or are we aware of it? The reason this is here in the scripture is not to go, gee, crafty so-and-so isn't he we're really up against it the reason is to become aware 
The reason is to be able to stand our ground. The reason this is here in the Scriptures is so we might be aware of it and continue in the purposes of God, holding the binoculars the right way round when we look at the purposes of God, when we read the Scriptures, when we consider what our part to play might be in God's family, in God's kingdom. Are we seeing God through the right lens? Are we seeing His kingdom through the right lens? Because we're aware of this. Or has it got twisted round where maybe we're just starting to feel a bit like that king? I'm, I'm just... I'm, I'm just, I've, I've just, do you know what? I've just got to sit down. Uh, I've just got to take, take it easy. We, we kind of just think if fear gets a hold, just everything's a defensive decision. Everything's a worried decision. And it's no longer advance. It's no longer faith. It's no longer building. Yeah, being aware of what's happening. Oh, just everything just needs to get dialed down. Let's try and maintain what we have. But let's not really expect Let's not believe for God to continue to lead, to continue to advance his kingdom and his purposes. We're just getting intimidated. Well, how do we overcome manipulation and its various guises? We just, firstly, we need to be aware this is a scheme. It is a subtle plan. Nehemiah could have got to the end of this building program and, th- and thought, that's it. The job is done. The work is complete. The walls are rebuilt. Let us eat. Let us drink. Let us take life easy because nothing can affect us now. We're safe. We're secure because the job is done. And he could have just gone into a very kind of relaxed frame of mind. It's just, this is wonderful. This is great. Well, it was great, but he's also aware of what was happening. So in the beginning of chapter 7, we're told, after the wall had been rebuilt, um, and I had set the doors in place, uh, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. In other words, he's aware this city, this what's been established, it needs guarding. It needs protecting. It needs kind of tending to, and it needs, it needs people, it needs us, it needs one another to be doing that, to be kind of standing on, on guard, as it were. Not just a, a, a defensive, worried posture, but a sense of we want to keep what God has given us, um, not kind of lose ground, as it were, not just allow things to deteriorate around us. 1 Peter 5, um, verse 8, tells us, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Kind of saying, this is not unusual, this is not strange. We are a people who need to be, in an ongoing way, self-controlled and alert, aware that the devil, whilst completely defeated, is still prowling round, looking for someone to try and pick up, pick off, looking for someone he can just sow seeds of fear and intimidation. Um, into now the good news is he is defeated and the good news as well is we can resist him resist him standing firm in the faith we need to be aware of these guises sometimes not so subtle prowling around like a roaring lion sometimes very subtle coming as an angel of light or perhaps in our culture what is the most um, 
successful strategy that the enemy has is disguising his existence altogether um, and creating a, a worldview which says the, all that exists is what we can uh, see, feel, touch, hear, and scientifically test. That, that is the universe. And the enemy thinks, oh, that's, that's wonderful. I can sow so much chaos if people are not even aware that I'm doing it, not even aware um, of my presence. But it's not just being aware of, uh, of the enemy. He would like us to look through a lens where we see him and think, oh, if we're not taken off guard and forget that he exists at all, he'd like us to think that he's bigger and greater uh, than he actually is. So we need to be aware of his schemes, but we also need to be aware of the greatness of God, aware of him being in control. Nehemiah was persuaded that the God of heaven was in charge. Ultimately, he was not meeting every challenge from his own personal resources. So what we see in Nehemiah is a man who, come what may, whatever challenge, whatever difficulty came, or even when there weren't difficulties, his response, his kind of reflex reaction was to come to God. We've seen it so many times. Come to God, pray, leave it in God's hands, come to the Word, and then crack on with what God's called him to do. Just get on with what God's uh, plans and purposes are. I think that's what we're seeing here. He doesn't engage overly in this correspondence. We're not told that Nehemiah wrote several letters back or he, he got Tobiah around for tea and tried to explain things to him a bit more clearly again. Maybe he can win him through. No, he knows he's not going to have that influence. He knows this guy is just set in his opposition. And so Nehemiah's response is, again, not to be distracted. This is, must have been intensely discouraging, but he's going to find courage because he's turning to God and he's seeing God through, as it were, the right lens. He's looking the right way round. He's seeing, he's focusing on him and on God's greatness. For us, that also specifically means focusing on Christ's victory. Nehemiah could look at, reflect, speak with the God of heaven who will give us success, as he said in chapter 2, verse 20. What we can do is focus on the God of heaven who has come down, who came down to intervene. And when he came down, God had a plan in store. Jesus came to Jerusalem with a wonderful plan. There was a, a, often a clash as he comes across um, uh, spirits that want to oppose him. But 1 John uh, 3 and verse 8 uh, makes clear, coming in just partway through the verse for a particular phrase, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 highlights in this regard particularly what Christ has achieved by his death and resurrection. Let's just read from a few verses um, before verse 15. So Colossians 2. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. 
That's what we want to be looking at, reminding ourselves of. Christ has not just forgiven me from my sin, he has defeated all the powers of darkness. There is an enemy. There are evil forces. There is a kingdom of darkness. It won't acknowledge it, but it is completely defeated. We were singing earlier on. Again, it just seemed to crop up so many times in different songs. Lifting up, lifting up, lifting up the name of Jesus. Not because he needs a helping hand to become great, but because he is great. But the world doesn't know it, or the world doesn't see it. And principalities and the powers that are opposed to it need to be reminded, like we were hearing, like Wendy was just saying as well as others, there's power in the name of Jesus. Yes, he suffered and died. Yes, he came as a servant. Yes, he died on the cross and he rose victorious. He defeated some things. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. And there's nothing that can overcome him. So when we're reading Nehemiah chapter 6, we kind of get to that point of, yeah, there's a sense of inevitability here. The wall was rebuilt. Well, of course it was, because God was in control, because God was in charge, and his hand of favor was on it. Of course Jesus rose from the dead. Of course he conquered. Of course he forgives sin. Of course he transforms life. Of course he delivers people from fear and oppression from the enemy, because he's already achieved it. He's already won. It's upon that that we need to take our stand. Not because we need to achieve the victory. The victory is won. But we need to stand. We need to be aware of these schemes and devices, the greatness of God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 puts it so kind of uh, emphatically Um, when Paul writes there in chapter 6 verse 10 finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth and so on. Going on to talk about the different elements of the, the armor of God. But it just says again and again, stand, stand firm, keep on standing. Hold that ground. Don't give it up. Don't pretend as it were. Don't kind of get duped. We were looking at deception last time. The enemy would try and deceive and deceive God's people into kind of minimizing what God's achieved, minimizing what's God done, and minimizing what he's able to do in the here and now. Oh, we're just looking through the binoculars the wrong way. Let's kind of just allow these things to be magnified before us. Be strong in the Lord. We're not seeking to be strong in my abilities, strong in my physique, uh, strong in my manner. It's not strong in my energy or my resources. Like Nehemiah, it's being strong in God. 
Paul writes to Timothy, perhaps a guy who was prone to feeling uh, timid from time to time. And he was aware of some of the opposition, some of the challenges, some of the false teaching, some of the big personalities sharing heresy. And he's like, oh, what do I do? Um, well, Paul uh, writes to him in 2 Timothy and uh, chapter 1. He says in verse 6, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. He just needs to be reminded of what God's already done. Reminded of what God has already given. God does not want to or indeed make us a timid people. God wants to help us to fan into flame that which he's given us. And it's a spirit of power and of love and of self-control or self-discipline. So we take our stand and release other people. When fear or intimidation gets a hold, if it had succeeded in getting a grip on Nehemiah, feeling all that isolation, not quite sure, the temptation is just to to draw back from people, to draw back from community, and uh, I've got to be in control. I have to do this. I'm responsible for this city. I'm responsible for the walls. I'm responsible to guard it. I'm responsible to protect it. I cannot trust anybody else because they might not be with me. Um, And again, fear has got a hold rather than faith, or had that been the case, fear would have got a hold. Nehemiah would just have to keep things to himself. But what do we see him do? We see him appoint other people. We see him uh, not uh, for a variety of responsibilities, gatekeepers and singers and Levites and so on. Uh, also his brother Hanani or Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, were put in charge of Jerusalem. I love the way one is described as being a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. Hardly sounds like a massively ringing endorsement, reading in a certain uh, tone of voice. Um, but he is a man of integrity and he feared God. And there were a lot of people who weren't fearing God. And Nehemiah is not going to be intimidated into thinking, I have to be in control. I have to be in charge of everything. I've got to be kind of pulling the strings myself. Oh, hang on a minute. I've become the manipulative one, having been manipulated. That's where this can go. Instead, he's clear. Now, I need to release other people into God-given responsibilities. That's how this city will be protected. Paul says the same thing to Timothy, in 2 Timothy. And I should have kept my own finger there, knowing that I was turning back to that particular page. But hey-ho, live and learn. Um, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus... And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. That's what's involved in being God's people, a community together. Not just holding things to myself and, and seeking to be in control, being trust. It's a There's need to release, endorse, encourage others into God-given responsibility. Now, clearly, there are some qualifications. Clearly, it's not just um, a, a reckless process. It's not a reliable, trustworthy, 
people of integrity who fear God, well, you can do a lot with somebody. God can do a lot with someone of integrity who fears God. Maybe that's in there because they kind of thought, Hanani and Hananiah, well, they're good guys, but I, you know, how competent are they? Are they as good as Nehemiah? Can they really cut this? No, they're, they're men who've got good character. Therefore, whatever their competence, God can use them, God can grow them, God can release them, God can help them, God can equip them. But when a spirit of control comes or a spirit of manipulation, oh, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You've got to take hold of things yourself and, uh, and start pulling the strings. So we've, we've seen here a particularly crafty, unpleasant, divisive scheme that the enemy has. We need to be aware of it so that we are not intimidated, so that we continue uh, building. Really, this point in Nehemiah is a turning point. The building work has been the focus in these first six chapters. The process of rebuilding the wall. Now, the focus is on people. Now, the focus is on building community. And that's what we need to be mindful of. Building community, one with another, blessing the world around us, making sure that, well, like, like it said to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in our Lord Jesus. Don't, don't give up ground. Don't start relating to one another in a manipulative way. Or if that's kind of coming in in some way, let's recognize it, let's deal with it, let's repent of it, let's run it through. If we've been influenced or we feel the, the kind of the weight of oppression that can come, uh, just picking up controlling vibes from elsewhere, be it family, be it wherever. Again, the battle's not against flesh and blood. The argument is not with people, but we're living and walking before God. There is stuff to shrug off. King Theoden needed to shrug off what happened. He needed somebody else. I'm not preaching from Tolkien, I promise. Um, this is just an illustration. But Gandalf had to come along. Gandalf could see it. Gandalf dealt with worm tongue. That king needed to make a decision. That king needed to realize, actually, from going kind of just sat in my chair, passive, oh, kind of spirit of weakness, think, no, that's not the spirit that God has given me. Okay, I'm now preaching from the Bible, not from Tolkien. Forget the illustration. We're going with the Bible. I need to shrug off that spirit of timidity because Jesus has defeated all the powers of darkness. So we look at what Jesus has done. That leads us to a decision. God has not called me. God has not called you. Just to have that blanket of oppression around our shoulders. God's called us to adventures of faith. God's called us to release and bless one another. God's called us to be a people who just believe in the power of God to bring deliverance and freedom. But we're not just going all materialistic and uh, just having a Western mindset on everything. There are spiritual forces. They do influence. Let's be aware. Let's overcome. Let's keep building and let's keep walking with God. Amen?